We're going to answer a question uh, today. Uh, I'm going to raise part of it now, and we'll try to answer it before the end of the sermon today. And that is this, the missionary activity of the church. This is the key idea that I want you to remember for today. The missionary activity of the church was not the result of clever strategic planning. The missionary activity of the church was not the result of clever strategic planning. So the question is, what was it the result of? That's what our study is about today, and that's what hopefully I will be able to answer for you, for you by the time we are done this morning. All right, I'm going to read it quickly, starting at uh, Acts chapter 12, verse uh, 24, and then we'll uh, pray and dive into our study. But the word of God continued to increase and spread. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Lord, we come to you this morning recognizing our need, our need to uh, grow in you, our need to grow in your word, our need to be changed both inside and outside by your word. And that's our desire every week as we study your word together. That's our desire each week, Father, that your word not be just an academic exercise but be something that reaches to the depth of our being, something that changes the way we think so that we are more biblical in our thoughts, something that changes the way we walk and talk so that we are more biblical in our walk and biblical in our talk. Thank you, Lord, because by doing that, we can reach out to the world around us and have the same impact that the early church had around the world of their day. Father, help us to understand your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, verse 24 of chapter 12 uh, is the conclusion of the uh, story of chapter 12, which had to do with the putting to death of James, the brother of John, who was put to death by Herod, and the arrest of Peter, and as you know from Chris's teaching last week, that Peter, uh, uh, John, uh, James rather, was put to death, but Peter was released. Peter was saved. So what is the outcome of all that? The Word of God continued to increase and spread. The Word of God continued to increase and spread. You see, no king can stop the spread of the Word of God. No government can stop the Word of God from spreading. And Chris did a great job of teaching us that the other week. One writer put it this way, While Acts 12 opens by showing us a powerful king and a praying church, it closes by describing a dead king and a dynamic church. 
I thought that was a great way to, to put it. Another writer said, no opposition from any source, no opposition from any source will prevent God from building his church. Defiant rulers cannot stop him. Antagonistic governments cannot stop him. One other writer said this, Herod has made his speech to the rapt approval of the starving people of Tyre and Sidon and is now silent. But the Lord's speech continues to explode into the world, multiplying, spreading, overtaking the world once held within the tight fist of the tyrant. You see, no government can stop the word of God from going forth. No king can stop the word of God from going forth. Despite the persecution, despite the death of James, despite the imprisonment of Peter, temporary as it was because of what God did in his life, despite those things, we read in verse 24 that the word of God continued to increase and spread. Now, Chris told us that that was a hinge verse, and it is a hinge verse. Another thing that writers often call verse 24 is a progress report. A progress report. There are seven progress reports in the book of Acts where Luke brings us up to date on how the church is developing, how the church is growing. This is the fourth of the seven progress reports. If you want to look at the others, chapter 2, verse 47, chapter 6, verse 7, chapter 9, verse 31, chapter 12, verse 24, the one we're looking at right now, chapter 16, verse 5, chapter 19, verse 20, chapter 28, verses 30 and 31 are the seven times throughout the book of Acts that Luke gives us a progress report of how the church is doing and how the church is growing despite opposition from religious leaders, despite opposition from political leaders. The church grew and flourished. And so it is a great example to us. The word of God spread. Opposition and persecution couldn't stop the gospel. God sovereignly caused the church to progress. Well, verse 25, when Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, do you remember what that mission was? It's about three weeks ago, so maybe you don't. Uh, the mission that they're talking about is from chapter 11, verses 27 to 30, when uh, there was a predicted uh, famine upon the uh, Palestine area, and therefore the church at Antioch, <clears throat> which was the first primarily Gentile church, the church at Antioch took up an offering to help the Jewish believers, the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem by sending a gift to them, and they sent that gift by Paul and Barnabas. They brought the gift to the church in Jerusalem. So when it's talking here in verse 25 about Barnabas and Saul finishing their mission, that's the mission that it's talking about. They returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called John Mark. So we read about Saul and Barnabas who completed their mission of delivering the relief uh, effort to the church of Jerusalem, and they returned to go to work once again, to minister once again, 
in the church at Antioch. Now, you will remember Antioch is 300 miles north of Jerusalem and about 30 miles inland from the Mediterranean Sea. And the church of Antioch became the mission-sending church in that day. It's from the church at Antioch that Paul's missionary journeys went forth and that Europe and Asia Minor were reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the church continued to grow and continued to explode. Now, some, some um, chapter 13 begins a new chapter in the expansion of the church. Uh, and in this new chapter of the expansion of the church, we see again the fulfillment of Jesus' words in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Jesus challenged to the disciples to wait until the Holy Spirit's power came upon them, and then they would be his what? Anybody remember? Witnesses. witnesses. They would be his witnesses, and then Jesus laid out kind of an outline for that witness. They would be his witnesses in Jerusalem. We've seen that already in chapters 1 to 7. They would be his witnesses in Judea and Samaria. We, see, we saw that in chapters 8 through 12. And now starting in chapter 13, Jesus said they would be his witnesses to the very ends of the earth. So from chapter 13 to the end of the book of Acts, chapter 28, we see the expansion of the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth. Now, several important major specific changes happen at Acts 13. And you need to be aware of them. And so let me share them with you quickly before we get into the specifics of this passage. Uh, specific changes that occur starting at chapter 13 are these. From chapters 1 through 12, Peter is the dominant figure. From chapters 1 to 12, Peter is the dominant figure. From chapters 13 to 8 to 28, rather, Paul becomes the dominant figure. Peter kind of fades a little bit. We see him occasionally, and he'll interact occasionally. Luke will occasionally mention him. But from chapter 13 on, Paul is the dominant figure. Paul is the dominant figure. The second thing, chapters 1 to 12, Jerusalem was the center of the narrative. In chapters 1 to 12, Jerusalem and the church of Jerusalem was the center of the narrative. But now from chapters 13 to 28, Antioch, the church at Antioch, becomes the center of the narrative. It becomes the central sending church. In chapters 1 to 12, the main theme was the extension of the church through Palestine. Jewish evangelism, that was the main theme. Starting in chapter 13 through the end of the book, the main theme is the extension of the church in Europe and Asia Minor and Gentile evangelism. So up to 12, we have Jewish evangelism. From 13 on, we have primarily Gentile evangelism in the church. And, and one more major change in Chapters 1 through 12, we have the spread of the gospel in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. And 
from chapter 13 on, we see the spread of the gospel to Asia Minor and Europe through Paul's three missionary journeys. Paul's three missionary journeys. The first missionary journey starts in verse 4 of chapter 13. We'll get to that uh, next time. But 13 and 14, 13, 1 to 14, 28 is the first missionary journey. Uh, by the way, just a little aside, when uh, uh, I was in Bible college and then later in seminary, uh, we had to memorize these missionary journeys. That was a terror. Uh, we had to memorize every city that Paul went to, uh, the order that he went to them in, uh, anything specific that happened there. And uh, trust me, that's a lot of fun. So your, your assignment for next week is to <laughs> memorize Paul's three missionary journeys and the places he visited, the people he was with, and the things that happened. No, no problem, right? We're all on this? Okay, good. All right. So the first journey is 13, starting at verse 4 through 1428. The second missionary journey is 1536 through 1822. The third missionary journey is 1823 through 2117. And a lot of other interesting things happen in between and after. So that's kind of the, the specific major changes that occur between chapter 12 and 13. Uh, one thing I wanted to mention more about is John Mark. He now is accompanying, uh, he's called Mark sometimes, called John Mark sometimes. He's now accompanying Paul and Barnabas. Uh, and by the way, Saul is his Hebrew name. Paul is his Latin name. So uh, I'll use them interchangeably. Sometimes I'll say Saul, sometimes I'll say Paul. Uh, it's the same person, just his uh, Hebrew name and Latin name. So John Mark joins Saul and Barnabas. Now, interestingly enough, uh, John Mark is a cousin of Barnabas's. He's a, a cousin of Barnabas's He's, uh, that, we're told that in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 10. And as Luke does, it's a technique he uses throughout the book of Acts, he'll introduce a person almost as a throwaway, and then he'll begin to deal with that person later in the text. So he's introducing us to John Mark, and we ought to know that something's going to happen around John Mark. Well, what basically happens is in chapter 13, verses 4 and 5, we learn that John Mark accompanies Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey. We learn in chapter 13 and verse 13 that he did what? Abandoned them. He abandoned them and went back home. We learn also about John Mark that later in chapter 15, verse 36, when Paul and Barnabas decide that they want to go back and visit the churches that were established on the first missionary journey, Barnabas, being the encourager, you remember his, his, uh, he's called the son of encouragement, being the encourager, when Paul said, let's go back and visit the churches that we established on the first trip, Barnabas says, I'll go grab... John Mark, you remember what Paul said? No way, Jose. I think those are his exact words. No way, Jose. Uh, he, uh, he didn't want anything to do with, 
with John Mark. Now they were later, uh, their relationship was reconciled later, and that's a great story, but he didn't want anything to do with having John Mark, so much so that it led to a sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas, and they separated, and Barnabas took John Mark and went one way, and Paul took Silas and went another way. So uh, that's, that's a little bit of background about John Mark. Well, in the church at Antioch, we read in verse 13, chapter 13, verse 1, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. There were prophets, there were teachers in the church at Antioch. Now, remember we studied a few weeks ago that the gift of prophecy was a gift given for the foundation of the church. We call it a foundational gift, and it wasn't given it was unnecessary to be given after the Word of God was complete, after the New Testament was complete. They already had a completed Old Testament. And after the New Testament was complete, this gift of prophecy was no longer necessary. It's called a foundational gift. And uh, uh, it basically enabled by direct inspiration of the Holy Spirit new revelation to be given to a person. New revelation. Why was that necessary? Because they didn't have the completed Word of God. They couldn't do what you and I do when we have a question, when we have a direction to take in our lives, when we have something that we need to know in our lives. We can open our Bibles and we can find passages that God directs us to that will help us to answer the question or help us to make the decision they didn't have that because they didn't have a completed New Testament. The New Testament was only being written at this time. So therefore, it's a foundational gift. Paul says that in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, and you can write that down for your study. Galatians, uh, excuse me, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, where we read this. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. That's where we get that the prophecy, gift of prophecy, was a foundational gift built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Now, now tell me, how many foundations does a building have? One foundation. One foundation. There's no need for other foundations, no need for the gift of prophecy to continue once the New Testament had been completed. It was unnecessary for God to continue that gift. It's a foundational gift. We also see that in chapter 3, verses 4 to 6. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 4 to 6. In reading this then, Paul writes, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. You see, God is revealing by direct inspiration through this foundational gift of prophecy. 
He's revealing things that they didn't know previously. Now, what he's talking about in Ephesians 3, he's talking about the church. Now, if you and I want to understand and want to learn something about the church, we don't ask God to give us some kind of direct revelation. We go to what? Ephesians chapter 3. And there it's spelled out for us. Every issue that you or I have in life, can be the answer to it can be found either directly or indirectly in the Word of God. Every issue. The Word of God's complete. Peter said, we have all that we need for life and godliness. He didn't say, well, you know, you don't have everything and, 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 and uh, God's a good God, he'll give it to you along the way, hopefully. No, he said, you and I have everything we need to live godly lives. We don't need another thing. We have the completed word of God. And so the, the prophecy is a foundational gift uh, made unnecessary when, by the completion of the Bible. Uh, the emphasis on, on prophecy, we've seen this before, is upon revelation of God's will. That's called foretelling and the uh, exhortation to follow God's will, which is forthtelling. So that uh, was the, the prophet. Then there were the teachers. These were gifted by the Holy Spirit in the interpretation, instruction, and application of the Word of God. It takes to, uh, to be a teacher of this kind, it requires you to be filled with the Spirit. It requires uh, a teacher to be uh, under the control of the Spirit. It, it requires a teacher to know and study the Word of God, to be acquainted with the Word of God in, in uh, all of its parts, or be acquainted at least in where to find the answers. Uh, we used to kid each other when we finished seminary that, you know, now we knew everything. Well, that was just a joke. But what we did know was where to find everything. We found where to find the answers. We didn't have every answer when we finished our master's degree. We knew where to find the answers. Uh, so a teacher was gifted by the Holy Spirit in the interpretation of the Word of God, in the instruction of the Word of God, in the application of the Word of God. Ephesians chapter 4, 11, back in the book of Ephesians, uh, is one of the foundational verses for our church. And in Ephesians 4, 11, it says this, it was he, and in the context, that's Jesus, it was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastor-teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and the cunningness and craftiness of men. And he goes on to describe that. And you can read Ephesians 4, 11 and following on your own. So uh, teaching is foundational, uh, not a foundational gift, but it's uh, 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 essential to a church that would be obedient to God is the teaching of the word of God. And so at this church in Antioch, there are the prophets and there are the teachers. And 
Luke names them. The prophets uh, are Barnabas, Simeon, and Lucius, and the teachers are Manaen, Manaen and Saul. Uh, we don't know much about these folks. Simeon, uh, who his name indicates he had an African origin, some believe and, and uh, connect him with Simon of Serene. Now, what did Simon of Serene do? We learned this a couple weeks ago. What did Simon of Serene do? He carried the cross of Jesus. He was pressed into service to carry Jesus' cross for a, for a way. Uh, some connect the Simeon that's mentioned here with Simon of Serene who carried Jesus' cross. Um, they, they make that connection. And by the way, it's a tenuous connection and we can't really know, but I'll give you a little bit of the background. Uh, Mark chapter 15, verse 21 mentions Simon of Serene who was the father of Alexander and Rufus. And this is kind of convoluted, so stick with me. Romans chapter 16 and verse 13, Paul mentions Rufus. There are those who believe it's the same Rufus, the son of Simon of Serene. And Paul mentions that Rufus's mother was as a mother to him. Now, if Simeon and Simon are the same person, Simeon lived where? In Antioch. And Paul is saying that Rufus is the son whose mother was a mother to him. So there are those who believe that Paul, when he lived in Antioch, when he ministered in Antioch, that he lived in the home of Simon of Serene. We don't know. It's the, the connection is tenuous, but um, make of that what you will. So there's Simeon. There was Lucius of Serene. We know that he, Serene, is in North Africa. It's modern Libya. Manahan, Manahan is an interesting person. He was literally the foster brother or intimate friend of Herod, Herod Antipas. Uh, who beheaded John the Baptist and tried Jesus. Uh, he apparently was raised with Her Herod Antipas. And what a contrast between these two. What a contrast. Uh, one who became an opponent of the church, an antagonist toward the church and, and toward Jesus Christ, and one who became a disciple. One who became a disciple. And of course then we have Barnabas, whom we know, Saul, whom we know. Now, one writer said of Antioch, its uniqueness was its disturbingly glorious mix of people from all sorts of religious, racial, and social uh, roots drawn together around the risen Christ without the hang-ups of Judaism's fellowship-inhibiting rules or society's class structure. Another writer describes the church at Antioch in this way. The prophets and teachers of the church at Antioch came from very diverse backgrounds. The name Simeon suggests a Jewish background. He was probably of African descent. Lucius is a Latin name. He came from Cyrene, the capital of Libya in North Africa. Manaen had been brought up with King Herod Antipas, which suggests that he was from the upper class 
Barnabas was a Judean Jew. Saul was both a Jewish Pharisee and a Roman citizen from Tarsus. Now listen to this. This is good. The common thread among these five men was their deep devotion to Christ. Their deep devotion to Christ. That's what unites us with other people, no matter what their skin color, no matter where they are from, no matter what country, what unites us, no matter what their language, what unites us with other people is our common love for Jesus Christ. And that's what the church at Antioch was. That's what the church of Antioch, and it was a great uh, example of that. Well, as we go on, while they were worshiping, verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now, there's several things here, and I'm, I'm going to have to compact things to get everything in this morning uh, because it is, there are some important concepts I want to communicate this morning. The first is this. The text says that while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit spoke to them. Okay, While they were worshiping and fasting. Now, when you hear the word worship, what do you think of? Many times... We think of what? What we did a little while ago at the beginning of the service. We think of singing songs. We often call that the worship portion of the service. Is that accurate? Well, I'm going to try to convince you it's not. Uh, it is worship, but it is not the worship portion of the service. Um, the word used here that's translated worship is the word liturgeo, which, from which we get our word liturgy, and it literally means religious service, serving in an office or a ministry. In other words, what I'm trying to do is to broaden my thinking this morning, to broaden your thinking this morning, to understand that worship is not just singing a song. Worship isn't some kind of emotional reaction to what we feel about God. Worship is serving. When you're serving your family, you know what you're doing? Worshiping. When you're serving in Awana, do you know what you're doing? Worshiping. When you're serving in the greenhouse, do you know what you're doing? Worshiping. When you're part of a Bible study or leading a Bible study, do you know what you're doing? You are what? Worshiping. Worshiping. We narrow it to singing a couple of songs. It's a much broader word than that. The word translated worshiping here. It's used in Philippians 2.17 to speak of the practical faith of the Philippians. The fact that the Philippians lived out their faith, that living out their faith was worship. When you and I live out our faith, we are worshiping God. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 25, this word translated worship here was used of Epaphrodite's ministry to Paul. 
caring for his physical needs. That was worship. Romans 15, 16. This word translated worship here is used of the duty to proclaim the gospel. When you and I share a word about Jesus Christ with someone else, we are what? Worshiping. Worshiping. It's worship. It's an act of worship. I hope we're, we're expanding our thinking this morning. Romans 15, 27 this word translated worshiping here is used of ministering in material needs. When you and I minister to the material needs of others, whether we do it individually or corporately, we are what? Worshiping. We are worshiping. So that's, that's what they're doing. And I think that's what, I personally think that's what they're engaged in here. I think that's what they're engaged in here. And F.F. Bruce, the great teacher of the Word of God, spells that out. As these prophets and teachers were carrying out their appointed ministry in the church, the Holy Spirit made known His will to them. I don't think there are others that think that the church set aside some kind of special service and they fasted and they prayed and, and uh, all of this. They worshipped and in this special service and, and so... God uh, 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 spoke to them and told them what to I think they were just doing what they always did. They were serving. They were serving each other. They were serving the people around them. They were sharing their faith. They were growing in their faith. They were teaching the Word of God. They were worshiping. See, God chooses those who are already at work to do more work. God chooses those who are already at work to do more work for Him. And I think that that's what they're doing here. It, I don't think it was a special gathering. They were worshiping the Lord. They were fasting. Now, the question comes up, what, what kind of fast? And, and is fasting still appropriate for today? I have got just a few minutes to tell you all of that. <sighs> Let me give you the Cliff Notes version, thumbnail sketch, whatever, whatever summary word you want to use <laughs> about fasting. All I want to do is introduce to you what the Bible says about fasting or doesn't say, because I think that you and I, and I think most Christians really don't understand fasting. And I think that most of the time, fasting is used by us to get God to see things our way. That's, that's my opinion, okay? You can disagree with me, it's okay. I think that's what we do most of the time. Let me give you an example. Kathy and I have been dating quite a while started to talk about marriage and you know how how are we going to decide are, are we the one that God you know pointed out to each other are we the ones uh, well we're going to fast and pray and God will tell us now I got to tell you the truth there is nothing God could have said to me that would have changed my mind 
Nothing. Now, you may say, well, that's because you're an unspiritual jerk. Well, that may be true. <laughs> I, I won't argue about that. <laughs> but, but honestly, I don't know what God would have done. We fasted, we prayed, we married. I'm afraid that we misuse the whole concept of fasting because I don't think we understand fasting. I, I think they fasted in order to achieve unity. I think they fasted so that they might set aside their differences. I thought they fasted so that they might align their thoughts and actions with God's word, not lobby God to get their way. So what does the Bible say? I mean, that's the thing that counts. That's the thing that we're always saying here at Del Rio Bible Church, right? What does the Bible say? All right, this is what we find in the Bible, particularly in the New Testament. The Old Testament is kind of different. There were prescribed fasts in the Old Testament. Uh, we don't have prescribed fasts in the New Testament. Uh, so it's kind of different. So the question is, what does the New Testament teach you and teach me about fasting? This is, this is what it teaches. Number one, Jesus' disciples did not fast. Matthew 9.14, Mark 2.18, Luke 5.33. Jesus' disciples did not fast. In fact, it brought them uh, in conflict with the religious leaders. Remember, the religious leaders said to Jesus, why is it that your disciples don't fast? Uh, those holy um, um, Pharisees fasted on every Monday and Thursday. And they're not the people I want to follow. I don't know about you. They fasted every Monday and Thursday. Um, there were three public fasts on the Day of Atonement, the Day of Purim, and the ninth of Ab, which was the, signified the fall of Jerusalem, were three public fasts. Jesus' disciples did not fast. Jesus said it was inappropriate for them to fast. Mark chapter 2 and verse 18. Secondly, the question is, did Jesus fast? And the answer is, the only possible place that Jesus fasted, the only place the scripture uh, might indicate he fasted, was before his temptation. Before his temptation. But that's unclear because the Matthew account of his, trans, of his uh, temptation, uses the Greek word for a fast when it talks about Jesus being hungry and not eating, but the Luke account of the temptation uses an entirely different Greek word that has nothing to do with fasting. Right? We don't know. Did Jesus fast? One writer said this, the only occasion when Jesus is recorded as fasting is at the time of his temptations in the wilderness. Then, however, he was not necessarily fasting from choice. The first temptation implies that there was no food available in the place he had selected for his weeks of preparation for his ministry. So we can't settle the question of whether Jesus fasted or not. We know his disciples did not. Number three, 
the key thing that Jesus was concerned about when it came to fasting can be found in Matthew 6, verses 16 to 18. And there he dealt with the right and wrong attitudes toward fasting. There were right attitudes toward fasting, there were wrong attitudes. He said, when you fast, clean, wash your face, comb your hair, look good. Don't, don't, look, don't look pallid and, oh, I'm, I'm holy and I'm fasting. Jesus said, don't be ostentatious about it. If you're fasting, just fast. People shouldn't see it. People should not know that you're fasting. He was concerned about that. Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 to 18. Number four, the only sure references in the New Testament outside of the Gospels to fasting are Acts 13, 2 and 3, what we're studying this morning, and Acts 14, 23 are the only sure references in all of the New Testament outside the Gospels to fasting. Number five, there are questionable references to fasting that where the word fasting got added by a copyist and the word fasting got attached to prayer so that when a copyist, some copyists of manuscripts of the New Testament, when they copied prayer, they added and fasting because they thought it should be there. Now, thank God we have the, the science of textual criticism and we can figure all of that out and we know where it belongs and where it doesn't and we have thousands upon thousands upon thousands of manuscripts and we can compare and contrast. For instance, Acts chapter 10 and verse 30 adds fasting to prayer in that particular situation. 1 Corinthians 7, 5, where Paul is talking about a man and a woman married and withholding sex from each other and why they should not do that. And he says the only reason to do, to do that is if you are doing it for a spiritual reason for a time. And he talks about prayer and the copyist added what? Fasting. Fasting's not in the oldest, best manuscripts. Fasting is not. So that's a questionable reference. Matthew chapter 17, 21 in his parable in Mark chapter 9 and verse 29 uh, where Jesus had to cast out the demon from the man's son because his disciples couldn't. Do you remember what Jesus said? This type comes out only by what? Prayer is what it said, but the copy is added and fasting. It doesn't belong in that passage. It's not in the earliest and most reliable manuscripts. So those are questionable references. Number six, there are no places in the New Testament where we are obligated to fast. Now, it doesn't mean we can't fast, but there are no places where we're obligated to. Real quickly, let me share a couple of things online. Fasting should not be undertaken in three instances. Number one, to force God to act in a certain way or to bring about a certain decision or result. Number two, fasting should not be undertaken to prove we're spiritual or more spiritual than those who don't fast. Number three, fasting should not be undertaken to curry God's favor. Guess what, folks? We already have it. 
We already have it. We have His favor. So let, let me share some final words from uh, Larry Richards. Uh, has a great section on fasting. He said this, Fasting has been promoted both for its supposed spiritual benefits and as a diet aid. Most biblical fasts lasted only a single day, although a few seven-day fasts are mentioned. At times, a limited diet of basic foods and waters is also called a fast, as in Daniel 10, 2 and 3. In the Old Testament, he says, fasts are generally associated with repentance or at times with mourning or prayer. The New Testament usually links fasting with prayer, yet there are no instructions in the New Testament calling on believers to fast and few suggestions that fasting holds particular spiritual benefits. Although fasting can be a positive experience, it should not be thought of as a religious duty or as an especially spiritual exercise. And then he cautions, if someone's asking you about fasting, be sure that anyone who plans on fasting checks first with their doctor. It may be dangerous to their health. Secondly, he says, fasting should not be undertaken in spiritual desperation or with the belief that it will surely bring one closer to God. Spirituality is found in showing God's compassionate love for all in our daily life, not in denying the needs of the flesh. So, you make up your mind. I've given you the background. I've given you the information. You decide. One last thing, I raised a question. I mentioned that the missionary activity of the church was not the result of clever strategic planning. So if it's not the result of clever strategic planning, then what is it the result? What was it the result of? The answer to that, and I don't want to forget to give it to you, the missionary activity of the church was not the result of clever strategic planning. The early church did not write a purpose statement and a vision statement. They did not cast vision. They didn't do any of those things that we find so desirable in the church today. Why is that? Because this is my belief. The reason is the church sees itself as just another commercial institution. Now, there's nothing wrong with business practices, but when business practices trump and direct the church, they are wrong. The church today too often takes its clues from the business world, purpose statement, mission statements, core values, then you can stop me right now and say, well, I went to a welcome lunch and you have them. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. But they hopefully aren't governing us, but the Bible is governing us and they come out of the Bible. We believe that we are to listen to the direction of God's Holy Spirit as he directs us through his word and that's what directs this church. The church isn't just a commercial institution. It's a living organism with the dynamic of the indwelling living God to direct it. It's not just an organization, and that's what we need to understand. 
So the answer, again, is the missionary activity of the church wasn't the result of clever strategic planning, but rather as they prayed and they worshiped, God, the Holy Spirit, directed them. As they prayed and as they worshiped, God, the Holy Spirit, directed them. That's what was behind the missionary activity of the early church. So how does God direct, and this is the last thing, I'm already over time. How many times can I apologize for that? Well, 70 times 7. <laughs> how does God direct? Jerry Bridges wrote a marvelous piece about that. He said, we don't understand just how the Holy Spirit interacts with our human spirit. But we do know he most often uses his word. He brings to our minds some scripture particularly appropriate to the situation. He may do this through a sermon, a Christian book, the encouraging words of a friend, or our own reading or study of scripture. In my case, Bridges says, since I've memorized so many scriptures over the year, he often brings to my mind a memorized verse. God the Holy Spirit can communicate to you or me through his word by bringing to mind that part of his word which we have known, memorized, studied, meditated upon, and he will do that for us if we truly want him to. He will do that. So much more in this passage. We're going to have to stop there. Would you bow with me in prayer? Lord, thank you. Thank you for this church at Antioch. Thank you for these leaders. Thank you for their love for each other because they love Jesus Christ. Help us to love others because we love you. We love your son, Jesus. Help us to worship you by serving. Help us to listen for your voice through your word. In Jesus' name.